This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. One week to spring and the days are getting longer. Something to look forward to and, of course, to look forward to two hours of Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett. And that'll be followed by Done By Law. Of course, not forgetting, thanks to Anne McAllister for the Celtic Folk Show. But for now, activist and broadcaster Jacob Gregg and his focus is the African country of Niger, where a coup was staged late last month. But who's behind it and why? And former academic and foreign affairs advisor Tony Kevin follows up on the topic with concerns of US control of our critical minerals and an analysis of the war in Ukraine not the verdict you hear in the mainstream media. Nick McClellan has been on a visit to the Pacific and will look at President Macron's visit there as well as other issues concerning the Pacific nations. And Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, Bob Phelps, looks into the IVF industry at Monash University, a current case looming, but unfortunately not the first time the industry has been caught out. But, of course, we can't forget Mr Kevin Healy as he enters his 41st year of his week that was. A week, Jane Lister, when big Supremo Anthony Albing Uzi got the states together to solve the problems of housing unaffordability, rental unaffordability in the private sector, and what a brilliant solution. He's handing billions to the states to subsidise the private sector to build more housing that people can't afford. Genius! They'll also fund the infrastructure the urban sprawl will require, saving the poor developers, the property industry heaps more, although doing little to save the ecology, the flora and fauna destroyed by corporate welfare. And they all agreed a rent freeze wouldn't work because that would discourage the private sector from providing the rentals people can't afford. And they all know public housing doesn't work, else they wouldn't have flogged it off and privatised it. So there's the solution. Another $3.5 billion pissed up against the wall of the private sector. Anthony then waddled off to the Socialist Party conference, more like a three-day theatre with each act carefully choreographed. The left, we are told, the left, (laughs) what's the definition of a misnomer? We are told having the numbers for the first time in eons, thanks to a bit of a break on the right branch stacking in Victoria, sensibly using those numbers to ensure the right one as usual. But then it would take the world's largest telescope to detect the slightest difference between them and then doubt if it could detect any. The only time they come to blows in serious, critically important political debate is fighting over who gets their bums on the plush seats and doesn't that make a difference? The conference was told by one of those bums on, Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive Richard Mall's the bad guys, they must support Forkers, 38 million a day for 30 years on killing people because it will create thousands of well-paid union jobs. So obviously they can't think of projects that would create all those jobs but not kill people or support killing people. And 
Richard must plan to change the caring business class laws that make it illegal to force workers to join an evil union. All the thousands of jobs could find themselves fined billions as caring employers object to the abrogation of their workers' God-given right not to join a union parallel to their God-given right to enjoy the benefits won by the evil unions they won't join on God-given principles. And those most evil of evil unions, construction and maritime, wanted the filthy rich to be taxed to provide the public housing the governments know we don't need. But the government points out it has that item covered. It will fulfil its promise to untax the filthy rich, make them lots more filthy richer. All the more reason why those calling for spending on public housing are being so selfish, depriving the filthiest rich of their God-given filthiest rich rights. Worse, the selfish unions also wanted the government to ban the cut stone kitchen bench industry, killing workers with silicosis, while the government was still consulting on the best way to stop workers dying, and the industry points out that right now it would be economic suicide to stop workers dying. We are sure the government will find the proper balance, perhaps a formula on how many workers should die or suffer excruciating pain per so many bench tops. The filthiest rich of the filthy rich are proof that the filthiest rich of the filthy rich are the big ideas people in this world. This greatest little economic order of them all world. Exemplified this week by two of our filthiest rich of women, Gina Wrongheart and Katie Pages of Wealth. Katie, the ever-happy partner of the ever-happy Jerry of the ubiquitous Harpy for Us and Harpy for Us Norman, who also own the super-profitable Magic Millions thoroughbred empire. And what these community-minded true blue Aussies have in common is their endless litany of big ideas with one common thread. They have brilliant plans for governments to fork out heaps of money and or facilitate new ways for them to make even more profit without having to spend a cent of their own. And always for the common good, their sole concern. This week, Katie was photographed with leading sportswomen boasting her support for more investment in women's sport. Yes, she supported more investment by government. See, she gets the publicity and doesn't have to spend a cent. And then she turned up calling for the His Most Gracious Majesty's Dominion Games to be held on the Gold Coast, where her thoroughbred empire just happens to be located, and called on the um, Victorian government to hand the money it would have spent on the Games to the Gold Coast Mayor. See? Thinking only of the common good. And Gina also called for the Games to head north, while pointing out she had no intention of providing any of the wherewithal, but... More importantly for the national interest, Gina told a conference in Western Troubadours sponsored by Gina, one of our biggest pastoralists and squatters as well as our biggest resource billionaire, that the agricultural industry, pastoralists and the squatocracy cannot afford the costs of addressing climate change and yes, you guessed it, the government should meet the costs. Trubler was his filthiest rich of the filthy rich person says the government should pay her to do something or other about climate change. And to show just how big-hearted this super-generous offer is, prepared to take one for the country, Gina doesn't even believe in climate change, but in the national interest, she's prepared to take the money.
So, listener, there's the secret of super-duper obscene wealth. Come up with brilliant ideas, big nation-building ideas, in which the government hands you the public purse. Meanwhile, in that lawyer's picnic, Gina and co. continue their fight over the spoils of the filthy rich, with her offspring's counsel accusing poor Gina of defrauding them. Poor Gina. Happy families drags on along with happy public voyeurism. And another from the top of our filthiest rich of, Anthony Yora Pratt, is also into the honeypot. Anthony is so generous with other people's money, he's had his eyes on all that lovely, lovely worker's super for ages, throwing up exciting altruistic ideas on how the filthy rich can get their hands on it through it investing in the filthy rich. So altruistic, he's running full-page ads, jobs for true blue Aussies. He's proud to sponsor the super fund lending to his business round table. Sir Anthony, a true knight of the round table, making a killing using workers' money to employ workers, using their own money to exploit themselves. The caring business class taking that money all the way to the bank without risking one cent of their own. Like Toll Road recipient of public largesse, Transfer Your Wealth Urban, announcing a new Supremo to take over in October, Michelle Javelkayo, the motorists, who proudly declared she wants to continue to deliver value to customers. Whatever that means. Customers. That's those poor captives handing their hard-earned to transfer your wealth urban to enjoy sitting in a traffic jam morning and night. Her appointment announced under a headline, Transfer Your Wealth Keeps On... Oh, no, we can't say that on here. Sorry, sorry. Oh, no, my mistake. We can. Sorry. Keeps On Trucking. Last week, we celebrated that record profit at the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, allowing it to help its struggling customers, presumably to keep struggling after the Witch Bank has no choice but, reluctantly, to toss them into the gutter. Anyway, it's got a subsidiary called Unloan. Another misnomer, because its business is just that, uh, loans, contributing marvellously to the record profits, but talk about ungrateful. A worker it was good enough to provide with a job, a 38-hour-a-week job, complained he was forced to work 60-hour weeks, seven days a week, perform multiple roles not in his job description, complained, failing to comprehend it's the nature of the job, and sensibly, when he complained about all that, unloan had no option but to unpay him, sadly have to let him go. And what thanks, this selfish, selfish worker is suing for unfair dismissal. But to balance that distressing attack on which bank, which used to be, we mean how, how else is it going to go on making record profits, balance that exciting news listener, that irresistible 92-year-old male sex symbol Lord Rupert of Wapping is in love again. Women just can't resist him, can they? Whooping it up on his luxury yacht with the latest smitten, lucky, lucky, many, many decades younger woman, a Russian scientist, the happy, happy couple last seen sailing off Corfu with two of Lord Rupert's offspring from his third, or was that his fourth marriage, whatever, the Chinese woman he married to facilitate making money in China. I'm sure you're as excited as I am, listener, and on all our behalves, we wish the happy couple a wonderful, profitable future together. 
the last one, an arch-conservative radio shock jock with whom he would have had so much in common, he nonetheless called off the marriage at the last minute. The previous one with whom he had gone down the aisle, he emailed to say it was all over. He's so lovable, isn't he? Well, to show just how much he cares for all of us, we started with the private sector solution to the private sector housing problems, cares for all of us. Lord Rupert's News Very Limited is promoting Future Victoria Business Leaders Event. The keynote speaker, award-winning urban designer, and a globally recognised expert in smart cities and social change. And to show what a boon this will be for all of us, it's sponsored by Lord Rupert's Whopping Sin, the Chamber of Profits, the Cook Casino, and builder-developer John Holland Profits. So that's guaranteed to make a big difference. Interesting to know Lord Rupert's idea of social change. Perhaps we could pass on a few of our ideas, a few of our thoughts on that. Finally, as all of the above sank into irrelevance, the recently deceased fighter for his cause, Harry Belafonte, sang, Ma Tilda, sing a little louder, but alas, they couldn't quite sing loudly enough. Good afternoon. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Copower gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. There have been a number of military coups in Africa recently. Mali, Bikini Faso and Guinea, for example. But the one on the 26th of July this year is Niger. It's similar, but at the same time different. Being treated differently, particularly by the US administration, who dispatched Victoria Newland, the acting Deputy Secretary of State, for the US there in recent days, the third visit to Niger in the past two years, where she sought meetings with both the deposed president and the coup leader. To find out more about Niger and the region, I spoke on Friday with activist and broadcaster Jacob Grech and asked him first to establish that Niger and Nigeria are two different countries Although, as we go through this interview, we'll find that there are connections. That's right. Can you just exp- is, is there a connection between the two? Well, yeah. Um, Nigeria is on Niger or Niger on eastern border, uh, western border, sorry. But the connection is that both Niger and Nigeria 
are made up of multi-ethnicities and both of them have a more Christian-based population in the south and a more Muslim-based population in the north. They're both just constructs of the colonial carve-up of Africa in in the late 19th century, I guess is the main is the main thing. They both have similar resources and um, they're both in recent years been very pro-Western. All right. Well, I want to now focus on the intentions of the US in Niger, Niger. It shows, doesn't it, when we've got the news that a certain Victorian island, Newland, has been to that country three times in the past two years. You've got a background on her, haven't you? Well, I've been aware of her for some time. I mean, she first came to my attention, I guess you'd call it, would be during the overthrow of Colonel Gaddafi's government in Libya in 2011. And she was one of the people advocating, working for Hillary Clinton, pushing for regime change in Libya. And I thought, oh, who is this person? So we started looking into her background. And then, as is with these kind of people, the more you you just see their name popping up here, there and everywhere. And wherever there's, not just here, there and everywhere, but here, there and everywhere, wherever there's trouble. And the next time we come across her is in... Um, Ukraine in 2014 with the Maiden uprising that she orchestrated. Busy woman. She's a very busy woman, yeah. A a career diplomat, but she's a very very strange one. I mean, she started her career in the late 90s under the Clinton administration when um, you and listeners would remember there were a lot of changes happening in, in Russia. And under the Clinton administration, there seemed to be some kind of genuine food Russia in, you know, in an economic community of nations that totally overturned during the following Bush administration. But um, she just moved seamlessly from the Clinton administration into the Bush administration and um, was one of the one of the hawks in that administration playing a a big role in providing information and lobbying on things like Saddam Hussein's alleged weapons of mass destruction, which were the excuse for the, for the war. She was very, she played a big role in promulgating that lie. She also was one of the people arguing against the U S negotiating with Afghanistan, um, you may remember that in the early 2000s, Afghanistan were, was offering to work with the United States to find Osama bin Laden and hand him over. And the Bush administration um, said, no, we're not interested in negotiating with you or working with you, we'll invade you. And she was a big role in that. She's um, queen of the chicken hawks, I've seen her described as. Well, let's move on to 26th of July and the coup in Niger. What's her line on that? Do you know what she's been talking about when she was there? She visited or she wanted to visit both the deposed president and the coup leader. Did she succeed? 
and and that's probably I I can imagine her I can imagine her steaming. She didn't meet the coup leader. He was busy. She met his delegate. She didn't get to meet the deposed president. So I can imagine her steaming there. But she, more important, I guess, than her trip to Nigeria um, after the coup, she'd spent a lot of time visiting Nigeria. I said to the east, sorry, to the south of Nigeria, last year and um, preparing for the change of government in Nigeria where the current president Tanubu was installed and she was over there advocating for free and fair elections was the official line and of course um, Nigeria's last election is considered by all and sundry and you know I'm talking about even reports on the BBC about it being anything but other than free and fair um, so she's She's had a hand since she um, came into this Biden administration in working on behalf of U.S. interests and U.S. corporations in Africa. And that's what concerns me, how far this goes back. Well, they're in a bit of a bind, aren't they? Because the U.S. has got its fingers in a few pies in Nigeria, but it can't recognise the coup because that no. would mean that they'd have to give up aiding the military. That's right. That's that's right. They can't aid the military. But, you know, they've got a new diplomat. A new ambassador is arriving in Niamey, the capital of Nigeria, this week. And one Kathleen Fitzgibbon, who was to IC in Nigeria. And she's arriving there with intentions to not give the current the, the coup leaders and let's call them what they are they're the current government whether they whether the US or I like it or not that's what they are in fact she's not going to offer them her credentials so it's like she's moving in there not working within the government not within the country not recognizing that the coup has happened they've got around about 1200 troops already in Niger, and people may be aware that the United States operates a drone base in um, North Niger where it's working against what it calls Islamic terrorism. So it's so complicated, so complicated there, mate, that um, we don't know which way it's going to go. Well, it's not just any old drone base, is it? It's a, worth about $100 million. That's a pretty big base. Yeah, it's a pretty big base. I think it's the largest U.S. drone base outside of the U.S. That speaks a lot to how important the United States sees the north of Africa and the Sahel region of Africa that has got so so many bases, so many bases there. Africom, the um, U.S.'s African Command, based in Germany, <laughs> based in Germany because it can't find a single African country that wants to host them the largest growing command within the US military. Not that long ago, I think maybe 20 years ago, it didn't even exist. Now it's it's growing faster and faster and faster. That says something about US investment in the region because let's remember and let's remind listeners that this is, this is about investment. Niger is rich in resources. Nigeria is rich in resources, Mali is rich in resources, Burkina Faso is rich in resources. And in all these places, we're seeing coups and counter-coups, often orchestrated 
by people who have been trained by the United States. I mean, it's it's easy sometimes when we're talking about um, the Sahel to fall into line with the idea that it's about Islamic terrorism, but it's about protection of resources and extracting the resources of the African continent for the US and Australian corporations. And also trying to get China out of there. Yeah, well, I mean, they're after, they're after resources themselves, aren't they? They just do it a little bit, how can I put it? They do it with money rather than with the military. But America's got so much invested in its military, it's the biggest sector of the American economy, that it's, it's, it's all it knows. It's the ultimate, you know, war is the ultimate expression of capitalism. And um, it epitomised in the economy of the United States. So they, it's the old adage, when all you've got to hammer, everything starts looking like a nail. That's the way the United States work. Everything is a war. Well, a lot of those countries that you've mentioned, they're former French colonies. What are the French doing in there? Well, the French, a lot of people would be aware of the old, you know, tropes about the French Foreign Legion. That's where they were, right, right across the Sahel. The French is also involved in profiting from the extraction of African resources. And France has nuclear power. They get, I think, 15 or 17% of their uranium from Niger at the moment. And that accounts for probably close to 25% of France's total, uh, what's the word, power requirements. So it's really in the French, in, in French capitalism, in the French state's interest to keep the countries of Niger and Mali and Chad, um, Nigeria, friendly to, to Western interests. Because, you know, Chad's another one. We had a similar coup in Chad only a couple of years ago where um, in lieu of a democratic election, the son of the former president who was deposed was just appointed by the military with the total backing of France, the United States and everybody. It seems it's only a military coup when the coup is um, contrary to Western interests. We had two coups in Burkina Faso last year. The only one that was really reported on in the media was the one that was contrary to American interests. The one that subsequently, the first one that promoted American interests um, wasn't reported on at all. It was just a change in government. We're seeing this all the time. The same things that coups mean they're against us. Transitions of governments mean they're on our side. A big border with Algeria, Niger? Big border with Algeria, Niger, yeah, and Algeria to the north. And look, a lot of the troubles started. There's a whole lot of talk about Islamic jihadist terrorism across the Sahel. Now, that didn't happen. There was one case of um, so-called Islamic terrorism in um, the Sahel prior to 2010. One case. It wasn't on the radar. It was not a thing. But since, particularly since the overthrow of Gaddafi's government in Libya, that had a real knock-on 
effect. You see, in Libya, had Gaddafi had a whole lot of people from the Sahel and from other areas of Africa, but mainly from Niger, Chad, Sudan, working in Libya. Now, the opposition to Gaddafi, they're a fairly right-wing Arab racist opposition, and they never liked the idea of black Africans having equal rights with Libyan Arabs um, because they've been in the country for, I can't remember whether it was six or 12 years, whatever. And one of the consequences of Gaddafi's government being overthrown was pogroms happening against black communities in Libya. Now, a lot of these black communities then travelled south through the border, through um, into Sudan, Chad, Niger, and through Niger to Mali, and through the bottom of Algeria into Mali. And these are the people who were not necessarily Islamic terrorists to start with, but groups of disaffected young homeless men who were taken up by jihadists who were um, the only people in town talking against Western interests. So that's where a big, and, you know, people will remember the the um, coup in Mali, of, I think it was 2012, maybe 13, that originated with the people coming south out of Libya. So this is a whole blowback situation that was started, you could say, by Hillary Clinton's move against Colonel Gaddafi, and that was... We know that that wasn't about human rights or anything else. That was about the Libyan government's move to have a reserve currency to oppose the dollar for oil exports and imports. And that was, as I say, backed and partly orchestrated by Victoria Newland. We created all this Islamic terrorism, quote unquote, in the Sahel. Can you talk a bit more about the Australian-based companies in Nigeria? Well, there's one big one. It's called ENRG Energy. ENRG Energy. I'm just um, looking at my notes. Um, and they've just bought a um, uranium mine in Niger. They've been there for a while, but they've just bought the, bought the rights to a, um, a uranium project in, in Niger, um, let me think, at the end of, la- at the end of last year. They're based in Malden, and they're an electricity provider. They're a, they're a big Australian company. Let's have a look. Yeah, I haven't got the details of Niger on my of um, sorry NRG on my computer ready to go. But just doing a quick search, I know they're based in Malden. They're a mining company. They're an energy resources company listed on the listed on the ASX. They do uranium. They do copper. I think they do a bit of nickel as well. But um, they've got a company, 100% of the Agadez uranium project in Niger. Now, Agadez is the region where the US drone base is, which is where the uranium is in um, in Niger. You know, people, as I said early on, Niger is basically in two parts, the north and south. And the south is where the government and the infrastructure is, and the north is where the uranium is. Well, what you've been talking about, Jacob, is countries and companies fighting over the resources of the people of Niger. What about the people of Niger? What do they get out of it? 
<laughs> Excuse me. People in Nigeria don't get anything out of it, mate. The people of Nigeria are one of the poorest people on the planet. They were largely depending on aid, and a big part of their aid has been cut by up to 50% because the aid organisations are re-diverting their resources to Ukraine. Okay? Again, Victoria Newland, Ukraine. But the people of Nigeria are just collateral damage, mate. The people of Nigeria, and a lot of this has started, you know, the early uprisings in Nigeria started with the Tuareg people in, in the north objecting to the Western, the Western extraction of resources and the Western dominance in the country. And this is the thing. Let me just talk about the Islamic terrorism and the extraction of resources just for a moment. It's, it's hard to explain, but if people think of the role of Hamas in the occupied territories of Palestine, it's not so much that a lot of the people who support Hamas are extreme extremist Muslims, but the leadership of Hamas may be. But what they're doing is they're providing the only voice in some areas against the exploitation of their country and the occupation of their country. And you've got the same thing happening across the Sahel. You've got people who are looking to their governments and looking to their own representatives about the fact that they're watching trucks and um, trains move out with all these resources, whether it's gold or oil or uranium, and they're living in absolute poverty and they're treated like shit. And they've got US forces and French forces walking around. I was in North Africa some years ago now and people were telling me about one of the things they really objected was about the way that U.S. forces walked around acting as if they owned the place, the U.S. and British forces at the time. You know, I've had the same... I've, I've had people tell me that in the Northern Territory about U.S. forces there too. But they turned to the Islamic terrorist organisations or the Islamic extremist organisations because they're the only people opposing the Western extraction or the Western, um, what's the word, plunder of their country. So they're not actually Islamists. If I was a young man watching all this go down in my country, I'd be joining an Islamic extremist organisation too and saying Allahu Akbar with the, with the best of them. Well, finally, Jacob, the ALP conference is on this weekend. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering if Julian Assange is on the agenda. Look, I've heard word that people are going to try to raise him, raise the issue, but I don't know how far they'll get. I really don't know how far they'll get. There seem to be some moves diplomatically, finally, to get him released. And um, the Americans, to my understanding, are talking about a plea bargain deal. I don't know the details. No one knows the details. But, um, you know, the usual thing is I'll say I'm guilty to this and this. Probably cop a couple of years, which will be cut because of time already served, and that'll be it. But there'll probably be some deal involved as well where he doesn't 
continue his operations or he doesn't talk about this, that or the other. I don't know, but that's what I'm imagining. But on on Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, it's important to note here that a big part of the information we've got on the coup leaders in Niger, on the role of Tanubu in Nigeria, in um, his getting ECOWAS together to possibly invade Niger, a big part of all we know about the scandals and the corruptions and the training of all the characters involved comes through documents released on WikiLeaks. And I urge everybody, when they hear a name coming up in this coup, just do a WikiLeaks search on who these buggers are. Well, I thank you once again, Jacob. Thank you, Jan. And I've been speaking with Jacob Greck, who is an activist, and I'd say a researcher, and presenter of the Friday Rave here at 3CR every Friday afternoon at 5pm. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, Free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes Fafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white Fafia to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. After speaking with Jacob Greck about the competition between Western countries to control minerals and other resources in the Sahel region of Africa brings me to focus on moves by the US-driven fast-track negotiations to develop secure strategic critical mineral supply chains in Australia. I spoke with Tony Kevin of the Emeritus Faculty at ANU, a former diplomat and foreign affairs advisor, author and commentator on World Affairs. Tony, you maintain that Australian minerals are ripe for the plucking by the US. Which minerals and how have you come to that conclusion that I just mentioned? I'm talking about the the rare earth minerals, which seem to be easiest to access in countries with a lot of desert. For some reason, the geology of desert countries like Australia and the Sahara and and, um, what's the third one? I can just think of those two for the moment. 
it, it is um, very much easier to access these rare earth minerals, which are, which are essential for semiconductors and a whole lot of stuff that goes into a, a whole advanced industrial economy. So things like titanium, cobalt, manganese, uranium, of course, all these metals sort of rather high up the periodic table, shall we say, all present in the form, O-R-E. And uh, Australia's rich in them. China is the third one, of course. That whole Western China, Xinjiang, Gobi Desert sort of area is, is rich in these things. If you look at the poles of you know, rare earth availability, you're talking about the Sahel, you're talking about Western China, which, of course, feeds straight into the Chinese industrial economy. And you're talking about Australia. The difference between Australia and, and the other two areas is, of course, we are a high-wage, high-living standard economy. So to get the stuff out of Australia is normally going to be more more expensive. The argument in my article, which, which appeared in Pearls and Irritations about two or three weeks ago, was that America wants to basically gain control of Australia's rare earth sources, not necessarily to use them immediately, but number one, to stop China using them, and number two, to sort of have them in reserve if Australia, if America needs to fall back on Australia as a, as a high-cost source. When I read this article by a couple of American Washington think tankers, and obviously pretty well-connected people, setting out what should be America's objectives under the the Australian-American Compact, which was announced in May in, in Tokyo when, when Albanese met Biden in Tokyo to great hoopla. Biden cancelled his trip to Australia, but Albanese went to Biden in Tokyo. Mohammed went to the mountains, as it were. They pronounced this agreement to do with um, uh, the environment and uh, clean economy, blah, 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 and just tucked away in it with this thing, oh, and we're going to develop with, with some urgency an Australian-American compact on rare minerals. That was followed up a few days later at a trade meeting in, in Chicago where um, the same thing was said again. But it was became a little more clear there that uh, this is about an American strategic objective to sort of have control of an important source of essential rare earth minerals, Australia. And when you read the article, it then says, well, America will need to do several things under this. Yes, we will invest money in developing these rare earth minerals in Australia, but they will have to be American-controlled companies, um, American-majority control. There'll have to be no investment by China. They didn't name China, but it was clear they were referring to China. Australia will basically have to accept whatever terms America dictates for when and how our resources are going to be sold. So oh, I found that extremely disturbing, you know, a major threat to our national sovereignty, along with all the other threats that we're experiencing at the moment, which I guess we'll talk about later. But this one is important because um, if America can gain control of these deposits and lock them up, and at the same time they have the opportunity to sort of throw a spoke in the wheels of Australia's relationships with the Chinese, where's this going to leave people who are selling stuff to China now? Where's it going to leave people like Twiggy Forest or or Homes Accord, or, or any of these companies, if they're told, well, you know, you have to basically American way or, or don't play at all. There's been almost no discussion of this in the mainstream media. Just to go back a step, that these US and other com countries, including Australia, have to have a compliant country to exploit their resources. 
and Australia is one of those compliant countries. Yes, indeed. And this is this is where the connection is with what's happening in the Sahel, because over the last two or three years, the Sahel has shown strong signs of ceasing to be compliant and certainly demanding much better terms for the use of their minerals in future. Clearly, Niger and Burkina Faso and Mali and Chad, they're all rebelling against the sort of the, the hegemony of the Americans and the French, which has de facto prevailed in those areas, which allowed the West to sort of basically pull minerals out of those countries at, at, at obscenely cheap prices. Yes, so you, you're quite right. I mean, Australia can be relied upon to be compliant. And uh, as usual, if you're compliant, you get walked over. And we will be walked over. The other country you mentioned is Canada. What's the situation there? Canada, like Australia, is is very rich in a lot of minerals that are important. It's, it's actually a larger country than the United States. Canada has a lot of this sort of stuff. And um, of course, it's a bit harder to access because of the weather. But Canada strategically is preferable to Australia from an American point of view because it is contiguous and uh, you don't have to cross a mighty great ocean in which there might be hostile powers. With Australia, you've got to basically do minimal processing in Australia and then get it into a ship and ship it to America. With Canada, it's just um, a train over the border. With China, what sort of minerals are being shipped onto China and are they being processed here at all? Obviously, there's a huge amount of iron ore that goes to China. I honestly don't know how much of the rarer minerals are going from Australia to China at this point. Are you saying then that China would be interested in them? Well, not necessarily. Why then the big push by the US to control them here in Australia? Well, I think as an insurance reserve, if, you know, if things go wrong in the Sahel, really badly wrong in the Sahel, they've got Australia to fall back on. So tell me more about these meetings between Biden and Albanese and what came out of those. Well, Albanese had a one-on-one -on -one with Biden in Tokyo in May when they were up there for for some regional meeting, I forget which one it was, and they announced a, a clean energy and, um, and protection of the environment pact. The uh, compact in rare earth minerals was was part of that general agreement. The clean energy stuff and anti-global warming stuff is all very unexceptionable. And, and, you know, most people would applaud that, I think, both here and in America. The, uh, the other stuff was not so good. The first risk is that we will alienate China even further from our, our trading relationship with China as a reliable supplier. Chinese will not, not be amused if we start entering into these restrictive agreements with the United States in, involving our major mineral companies that China's been used to trading with. And the second one is that um, simply the, the loss of our sovereign control over what we export to when. I mean, you know, if we lose control over when we export our wool, when we export our wheat, when we export our iron ore, to whom and in what terms, we lose sovereignty. And exactly the same argument applies to these exotic minerals. We don't seem to have much sovereignty left anyway, do we? In, in low well, we areas. Don't. I mean, it's being sliced away like salami. First, we allow 
sort of semi-permanent basing by US Marines, several thousands of them in Darwin. De facto, it's gradually becoming a permanent American base in Darwin. In a while, they'll stop saying, oh, well, we only send them in and take them away again and replace them. In the end, they'll be there all 12 months a year round. We allow the Americans to spend a fair bit of money re-equipping the strategic airfields like Tyndall in the Northern Territory near Catherine, which is being refurbished to serve as a base for US B-52 bombers, which we which can carry nuclear missiles, and, and we don't um, we don't ask whether they're carrying nuclear weapons or not. We don't know whether they're carrying nuclear weapons, nor do the Chinese, nor do the Russians. So de facto, that makes any airfield that sort of um, bases these American bombers a nuclear target. We've also made Perth Fremantle very much at risk because we just agreed that US nuclear submarines can visit Perth and spend extended periods of time there. And once again, we, we're not going to be allowed to ask whether they're carrying nuclear weapons or not. The Americans certainly will not be able to deny that they're carrying nuclear weapons. So hello, Perth is a nuclear target now as soon as these things start coming here. Well, you've been following Australian politics or whatever for many, many decades. Can you think of a period like we're in now, equivalent? No. I, I think even in the worst days of John Howard, and he came in after a, a kind of a good period for Australian sovereignty with Whitlam, Fraser, Hawke, Keating, they, all of them, despite their different party affiliations, were very conscious of, of Australian sovereignty. Howard was less so, but um, still to some extent. Morrison completely gave the game... Well, actually, Turnbull started completely giving the game away with his dreadful anti-Chinese foreign influence legislation, which was just, you know, struck right at the heart of, of our sovereignty. Morrison expanded on that, and, and Albanese just came in and it was a seamless transition within 24 hours. He said, no, we're, we're, we're right up there with Arcus. We're going to go on with all that. In, in terms of, of, of sovereignty and, and self-respect and self-determination, this is the worst we've been for as long as I can remember, really. I mean, you've got to go back to 1939 with Menzies getting up in Parliament and saying Britain's at war and therefore Australia's at war to have anything comparable. You can only wonder what the Chinese administration and political leaders think of Australia at the moment. You know, they say, great, Australia's oh, they're a our largest trading partner, blah, blah, blah. And then you've got us preparing for war against China with the United States. Yeah, I think the Chinese would be shaking their heads in sorrow, as I know the Russians are, because I've, I've got, you know, closer personal relations with one or two senior Russian diplomats here in Australia and in Russia. And, and I know that they shake their heads at, at Australia. They can't understand what's happened to us. Well, we all do that, don't we? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, this party conference is such a disappointment because obviously it's, it's nearly over now. It might have even ended. But, you know, where was the debate on these things? Nothing. The second issue, Tony, is the war in Ukraine. You'd like to talk about the reality of the conflict in Ukraine. What is the reality as you see it? The reality is that the first element, Russia, completely outclasses the Ukraine now, both in weapons, weapon systems, the integration of weapon systems, including air elements and ground elements, artillery elements and so on. Um, they've got superb technology now for basically taking out their enemies at a distance with minimal cost to their own lives. 
it combines artillery, it combines surveillance drones, men on the ground to go forward and point to things. It's a flawless machine. And they're using that machine now to defend a very long line all the way from in the far north near the Russian border up around Kharkov and Kupiansk, all the way down to um, the east bank of the Dnieper opposite, um, down at the bottom end of the Dnieper. So on this thousand thousand miles front, they, they've found good defensive lines, they've dug in, and they were basically been waiting for the Ukrainians to attack those lines, and they just basically, it's the mincing machine, they just kill, kill the Ukrainians and destroy Western equipment. And it's been like this now since the beginning of June. It's been a bloodbath. And even the mainstream Western media now, quoting unnamed anonymous officials, newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post, are saying that Ukraine has lost half a million men, 500,000. Some say that's dead only, and some say that's dead and permanently incapacitated. Either way, it's a huge figure. Russia hasn't lost anything like that amount, and Russia's got a much larger uh, population and manpower base anyway. It, you know, its population is several orders of magnitude greater than Ukraine. The Ukrainians in the last two or three weeks, I think, have realized that this is a suicidal way of conducting a war, just flinging your men at a, an impregnable wall and being destroyed. So they've now started holding back and husbanding, husbanding their manpower or what's left of it. And curiously, there are a lot of people in America who are very angry about this. Caitlin Johnson just wrote a brilliant essay on this, which I was just reading a few minutes ago. You know, she's making the point that senior American strategists writing in the mainstream media are saying, apart from the Ukrainians, the war is going very well for the West. Now, you know, just think about that for a moment, apart from the Ukrainians. The sheer sort of diabolical evil of that statement is to say, well, we want the Ukrainians to go on killing themselves. She quotes some people who, once again, are not critics of the war, supporters of the war, who say, well, we're disappointed the Ukrainians were, didn't really punch through. They would have taken more casualties, but um, you know, they, they just might have punched through if they'd followed our advice. Well, hello, the Ukrainians have taken half a million casualties. What does America expect of them? And... When I think more deeply about this, I, I sort of go to the next level of analysis, really, of a step that I don't think Capon's quite gone to at this stage, but I go there. And that is to say, well, ultimately, if you're an American strategist of this sort of moral bankruptcy, and they are morally bankrupt, a dead Ukrainian soldier is almost as good as a dead Russian soldier, because you know in your heart that Russia's going to win anyway. You know that Russia's going to reclaim whatever's left of the industrial uh, valuable part of Ukraine. They might leave a little rump state in the West if the Poles don't take it, but certainly the central industrial heartland of Ukraine and the eastern industrial heartland of Ukraine and the sea coast around Odessa is all going to fall to Russia. So if you're one of these very cold American strategists, geopolitical warriors, you could very well say to yourself, well, in the end, it doesn't matter much because... If the Ukrainians are dying, that's less soldiers in the future for the Russians. So in other words, weakening Ukraine is, in the long run, weakening Russia. And, you know, that's a diabolically evil argument, but I believe that's the unspoken thought in Washington at this point.
go back to 2014, Tony, what was the role of the US and in particular Victoria Newland? Victoria Newland was determined to bring about regime change in Ukraine, to change the government from a essentially neutral government trying to balance the country between East and West, uh, have economic ties with both sides, to a government that was um, influenced by fervent, I even say ferocious, anti-Russian uh, ideological prejudices, determined to reduce the Russian influence in Ukraine. And these people essentially were the old Banderite parties, uh, descendants of people who collaborated with the Nazis in World War II. America gave a lot of covert encouragement to these parties, which which never comprised at that time more than 8 or 10% of the pop voting population of Ukraine. They were very much a minority voice. This um, so-called democratic movement developed in Kiev, in Maidan Square, over three months, uh, sort of a permanent demonstration. And in the end, the Americans encouraged a fairly large group of Georgian saboteurs, or snipers, to put themselves in hidden locations around the, the square, which is the vast square, and at a certain moment start shooting at random in, in, into both the demonstrators and the police who were supposed to be controlling it. And they killed large numbers of people on both sides. And nobody knew where the shooting was coming from. And very quickly it descended into a complete riot, a bloody riot, and uh, the police fled, the Prime Minister fled, the Duma elected, sorry, the Rada elected a new a new prime minister who would basically, the Americans wanted. This new parliament immediately introduced anti-Russian language legislation, which made Russian-Ukrainian second-class citizens. The whole climate became very quickly anti-Russian. After Yatsenyuk, the first American chosen prime minister, there came a the second American chosen Prime Minister Poroshenko, and Poroshenko actually started the full-scale military assault on the rebel eastern provinces, Donetsk and Lugansk, firing artillery at, um, at, at, at the major cities there, which, which, which had declared some kind of desire for sovereignty from Ukraine. Then, a few years later, in, I think, 2019 or 2016, there was an election in Ukraine, the last election that's been held. In this election, Zelensky stood as an alleged peace candidate, and he was a, a Russian-speaking Ukrainian from central Russia, from a central Ukraine, an industrial city called Krivoy Rog, which is very close to the front line now. He said, we will try to improve our relations with Russia. And as a result, he got a very large vote. As soon as he came to power, he, he reneged on all that prosecuted the war and prosecuted, not, not the war. Well, yes, the war against the eastern provinces, he continued to prosecute that. And his diplomacy became, continued to be very anti-Russian. Relations continued to worsen until we got to the extreme tensions of 2022, which, which led to the outbreak of war on the 24th of February, 2022. And what do you know of the US involvement in Ukraine up until 2022? Once they had governments in, in control, as, 
as they had from 2014, they didn't have to do terribly much because all the essential directions had been laid down in, in 2014. And in the years leading up to 2014, they, the, the Ukrainian Banderites were able to populate the senior levels of the armed forces and the administration. These became basically compliant with anti-Russian ideology. The pressure on cultural manifestations of, of Russian-Ukrainian identity were able to continue. And I have to say the Ukrainians did a lot of this enthusiastically for themselves. You know, they loved pulling down statues of Pushkin and and so on and re- replacing anything that smacked of Russian-Ukrainian fraternity, destroying that. There, there's a huge monument in Kiev, which what used to be the Victory Monument, a massive thing, an immense cost and engineering complexity. They took the shield off this thing. It's a statue of a woman with a, a shield and some symbols in her hands, and they replaced it with a with a Ukrainian symbol. So, I mean, this is the kind of fanatical stuff they go on with. The Americans were trying, really until Biden came to power, both Obama and Trump were trying to keep long-range weapons out of the hands of the Ukrainians because they knew that with this new leadership in Ukraine since 2014, they would eventually be used against the Russian-speaking cities in, in eastern Ukraine, Luhansk and Donetsk and they would be used against possibly Crimea and, and even against mainland Russia, uh, areas of Russia bordering Ukraine. They kept the lid on these long-range um, advanced weapons, but Biden, to his immense shame, released them and said, no, no, let, let the Ukrainians have them. So this was when, in late 2021, the Russians put out a final sort of appeal for peace with the West, reduced the draft of a essentially of an east-west treaty between Russia and the United States and, and, and NATO by extension, which said, you know, NATO promises not to expand any further eastwards. Ukraine will return to a neutral status and, you know, we'll basically go back to a, a more peaceful and stable east-west relationship. The Americans laughed it out of court. They said, this is nonsense. We can't accept more than a very small fraction of this rejected it. And meanwhile, the build-up of these new long-distance weapons continued on the Eastern Front, which was just, you know, about 20 kilometers west of the city of, of Donetsk, which is a city of over a million people, absolutely defenseless against these weapons. Artillery shelling started increasing in the early part of February by several orders of magnitude. So it was very clear to the Russians that an invasion was being prepared to essentially take out those rebel areas. So Putin, on around the 20th of February, made a, a major diplomatic step. He said, right, I accept the independence, the sovereign independence of the Donetsk and Lugansk people's republics, which Russia had not accepted up until that point. Russia said, no, no, you've got to stay within Ukraine. He now accepted their independence from Ukraine. And he said, and we have from this moment a mutual security treaty whereby we will come to each other's defense if attacked. Now, I think Putin hoped that that might be the end of it, but he he underestimated American recklessness because it's clear that the Americans said to the Ukrainians, no, no, you go ahead. You've got enough forces there on the border that you could efficiently and quickly take out those cities. 
And we don't think Russia's going to invade you. We think that we've got the Russians bluffed. So that was a fatal miscalculation by Biden, I think, because as the Ukrainians kept on attacking from the 21st to the 24th, Putin said, right, we're going to move into Ukraine. And he had 120,000 troops on the northern border, not far from Kiev, and, and they moved in on the 24th. So even though Russia started the war, the sort of invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces, I, I think it's quite wrong to say it was unprovoked because it was totally provoked and indeed it was intended to be provoked by the United States. At this point, the United States wanted a war. Well, just finally, I think everyone realises there has to be a peace or some sort of negotiations to finish, to stop this fighting sooner rather than later. I'd just like to talk about the austerity that's happening in many countries around the world, including the US and those countries in Europe who are sending millions and millions of dollars of resources and weapons to Ukraine. And wondering what the citizens are doing in those countries who are suffering and seeing all that money being spent in a useless war. The Americans are certainly paying for it. I mean, their, their infrastructure, their public health, their education, everything is suffering in America. And meanwhile, they've, they've, they've given $360 billion to prosecute this war, which goes straight into the pockets of the American military-industrial complex, most of it, that which isn't squandered or destroyed in Ukraine. The main impact on the European people has been destroy German prosperity. I mean, for Germany, it isn't so much the supply of weapons to Ukraine that's crippled them. It's the, it's the loss of access to cheap Russian gas because the whole German industrial miracle of the last few decades has relied on cheap Russian gas, the blowing up of the Baltic pipeline by the United States, aided by Norway. So the NATO country was a fatal blow because Germany made no effort to rebuild it. Uh, Germany just acquiesced in it. They're now paying about three times as much for their gas from shipped in from the United States. They're trying to buy it all over the world, but it's, it's a much higher cost source of energy, which underpins all of their industry. And so a lot of their companies are going to the wall. Bankruptcies are increasing, unemployment's increasing, going backwards. And, and I mean, even Australia has suffered. I'm quite sure that our the pressure on our gas prices in this country is part of this global gas market having been impacted by the attempt to boycott Russian gas exports. Now, that, that attempt is, is, is failing because middlemen in countries like India are, are finding ways to take Russian gas out and camouflage it and sell it on the world market. But obviously, the price of gas and the availability of gas has, has been negatively impacted. And, and this has made... Australian gas more under pressure and the prices of Australian gas. And it, it's admitted that the Ukraine war, people don't ever go into the detail, but they say the Ukraine war has had an impact on Australian energy uh, availability and cost. You know, we've suffered too. Are you confident or not that this conflict can be resolved in the near future rather than let it drag on and on and more and more people die? It, it depends very much on what the Ukrainians do at this point and people under the control of Kiev, what they do and, and, and what the Americans let them do. Somebody said quite wisely, it might have been Scott Ritter, that 
the Americans can accept a defeat in Ukraine if only they're allowed to package it as a victory. I think this is quite an acute statement because the American psyche can't admit defeat. So they'll need to find a, a, a diplomatic packaging to somehow say, well, we, we got what we wanted in Ukraine. And I think the Russians would be trying within limits to help them have this kind of a diplomatic soft landing from the war. So, But it all depends on you know, some imponderable factors. Will the Americans get rid of Zelensky? I think he's, it's hard to see Zelensky staying in power after all this. He's so identified with these suicidal policies of killing half a million of his countrymen. And Zelensky's a Jew, so I think that's another reason why some people might be keen to see Zelensky gone. There's a fair bit of anti-Semitism around in Europe still. So with a new leader in, in, in Kiev... And with an American diplomacy that's actually about trying to package a peace, it could all end rather quickly. Now, that's a best-case scenario. A worst-case scenario, of course, is that you know nothing happens. The Ukrainians basically retreat behind their lines, lick their wounds, and they move towards peace. And in the end, then Putin's, Russia's going to have to decide, well, are we going to let this go on festering, or are we going to do something decisive to end it? And that would require a further Russian advance. They'd have to, to take Odessa, for example, or they'd have to take Kiev, uh, take uh, Kharkov. I don't think they'd try to take Kiev again. To answer your question, we don't really know. It could end quickly or it could go on for a very long time. We weren't expecting Afghanistan to end quickly the way it did, but it did. Wars can end quickly. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Kevin. Thank you, Jan. It's always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Tony Kevin. Emeritus Faculty at the ANU, a former diplomat and foreign affairs advisor, is an author and a commentator on world affairs. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. The state government has sold 578 hectares of public land to private developers. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. And we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. This deal really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australia domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, 
combat an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples. This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music, and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Next to our monthly Pacific News with Correspondent for Ireland's Business, Nick McClellan. Nick, I'd like to focus first today on the French President Macron's recent five-day visit to the Pacific. How many times has he now visited the Pacific? Macron's first visit to the region was in May 2018. He uh, stopped off in Sydney on the way through and gave a major speech where he announced his Uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. At the time, he talked about uh, an India-France-Australia axis in the region, although, as we know, uh, a few years later in uh, 2021, the Morrison government blew that strategy out of the water with the cancellation of uh, the France-Australia submarine contract uh, with the French corporation Naval Group. Um, So in 2018, he went on to New Caledonia to... um, talk with people there, once again about his Indo-Pacific vision. And in 2021, he was in French Polynesia. He um, had uh, uh, talked uh, with uh, people in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Um, And uh, indeed, French Polynesia had a massive surge of COVID cases after his entourage had been touring the islands. But he wants to present France as an alternative, that's his words, to the... uh, Uh, new imperialisms of uh, China and indeed the United States in the region. France has pretensions that it's a balancing force between the two major powers in what he describes as the Indo-Pacific. So this is uh, a key focus of uh, his recent visit where he wants to to present France as a player in the region. What is he actually offering? Not that much, actually, and that's one of the reasons why the Biden administration fell down France in, uh, in 2021 uh, uh, with the AUKUS announcement, and we see that even today, uh, although the Albanese government has been seeking to rebuild uh, military and strategic relations with France in the aftermath of AUKUS, Defence Minister Richard Miles has been cooperating with uh, French corporations in Australia about defence spending, Despite that, um, the Australian Defence Force is buying American rather than European. The um, Australian Defence Force is about to buy uh, Black Hawk uh, American-made helicopters to replace uh, European helicopters, uh, uh, one of which recently crashed during the Talisman Sabre War Games. Um, Although companies like 
French companies like Thales are still involved in the, in the region. You know, the loss of a $90 billion submarine contract with France really smarts. And uh, France is, is using these regional tours to promote French armaments uh, to other players in the region, including India uh, and Indonesia and uh, other ASEAN countries. Um, I was um, in New Caledonia reporting on uh, uh, Macron's visit there and during a military ceremony and wreath laying at the uh, war memorial in Numia, the ceremony was overflown by two Rafale jet fighters. And these fighters basically accompanied Macron uh, in, in the early days of his visit, uh, flying over Numia and uh, annoying the locals and making the dogs bark and so on. <laughs> and it was really like an advertisement for French armaments. On the 14th of July, uh, Bastille Day, France's national day, Indian uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi was the guest of honour in Paris for Bastille Day celebrations, which once again involved overflights of these uh, uh, French military aircraft. And surprise, surprise, India is considering buying another 26 high-tech uh, Rafale from France. So, you know, a lot of the, the posturing about the rules-based order and civil rights and human rights and so on covers up more mercenary interests, which is, is about uh, expanding armament sales to developing countries. Well, just focusing on New Caledonia for a moment, that's where there's going to be another vote for independence maybe this year, is it? No, it's pushed off for some time. It's interesting, New Caledonia, as we've talked about on the program before, has had three referendums on uh, self-determination under an agreement called the Namir Accord, which was signed 25 years ago. In the first two referendums in 2018 and 2020, the independence movement did very well. And indeed, the tally was increasing from 43% to 47% of, uh, of uh, support for a yes vote, yes for independence. France then rushed through the third referendum in December 2021 in the midst of the COVID pandemic at a time when Kadak customary leaders, independence supporters, the main independence coalition, FLNKS, were calling for it to be delayed until after France's national elections in 2022. Uh, the French rushed ahead with this. Most supporters of independence just didn't turn up. And um, indeed, the, the turnout halved. 57% of people in New Caledonia didn't bother to go and vote. And um, the credibility and legitimacy of that uh, vote is still contested by uh, independent supporters. While he was in New Caledonia, however, Macron gave a major speech on the 26th of July in the Place de Cocotier, the main uh, central square in, in Namir, uh, the capital of New Caledonia. He said that, you know, New Caledonia was French because uh, New Caledonians voted to remain French. He talked about developing a new political statute for um, New Caledonia. And what he's proposing is to reform the French constitution in early 2024. This agreement called the Numir Accord, which is a framework agreement that's governed relations between Paris and Numir for the last 25 years, was entrenched in the French constitution back in 1998-1999. And to change the rules, essentially, in shorthand, uh, you have to change the constitution. That means getting both houses of parliament, uh, the French National Assembly, the French Senate, to sit together uh, to agree on constitutional reform. Macron set a very short timetable for that to happen, but I'm not sure it's going to happen simply because two reasons. He's very weak politically in France after recent protests around uh, pension reforms, the retirement age. We saw massive strikes, trade union action and so on. 
also recent rioting um, after police violence against uh, young uh, French citizens of Arab and African heritage, the killing of a young guy, saw rioting in the streets, literally in cities across France. He lost uh, his majority in the National Assembly, so politically he's pretty weak. And um, many politicians in France have said to the French government, you can only change the constitution if everyone in Namir is in agreement. And coming out of the visit, which the media presented as this huge success and triumph for him, in fact, set back the attempts to do this. I interviewed, um, as Macron left, to fly on to Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea for a couple of days after his New, Cal- New Caledonia stopover. I stayed and interviewed a number of key political leaders, both supporters and opponents of independence. And it's clear that Macron's tour hasn't solved the long-standing tensions over the way forward, what sort of political statute could replace uh, the Namir Accord. And uh, indeed, uh, you know, there were some very sharp statements um, after he left. The largest uh, independence party, Union Caledonienne, put out major statements criticising the president's imperialist and condescending attitude. Um, They described his tour as a non-event. The president of Union Caledonienne, the largest independence party, said uh, on the record, I reaffirm it and I say it forcefully, New Caledonia is not and never will be French land. It is only a land occupied by France. During Macron's stays, he worked to divide and aggravate the fracture he caused since the 12th of December. That's the third referendum. Hardly a ringing endorsement of the diplomacy from the the French head of state. And um, although... uh, Independence leaders told me that they were going to travel to Paris for talks scheduled in September. They just uh, weren't going to follow Macron's timetable, um, which would allow him to reform the French electoral the electoral rolls for New Caledonia in early 2024. He's come out of that um, with a lot of problems in New Caledonia. Any particular reason why he went to Vanuatu? Because they, the media keeps saying it's the first time that a, a French president has visit an independent country in the Pacific? Well, they say it's an independent country because that's true, but a previous French president did go there. In 1966, General Charles de Gaulle did a Pacific tour, and at the time, what's today, the independent Republic of Vanuatu was a joint British-French colony. Uh, It was called a condominium, and the two, imagine having two colonial powers instead of just one. Um, it was known as the pandemonium by Ni Vanuatu independence leaders as they struggled for independence. And so um, uh, in July 1966, France led off its first nuclear test at Mururoa and Fangatofa Atolls at Mururoa. And in September that year, just three months later, then President de Gaulle wanted to come and witness a test. So he travelled to New Caledonia and he stopped in the New Hebrides, uh, then a French colony, on the way to Mururoa Atoll, where he witnessed a a nuclear test um, in September 1966. So all the headlines about this is an unprecedented visit, um, yes, to an an independent nation like Vanuatu, but the the colonial legacies were still there. You know, Macron was pretty warmly welcomed. Uh, He uh, gave a few uh, sentences in Bishlama, the local uh, pidgin language, uh, um, as he spoke to the crowds. Uh, um, You know, he got a lot of... uh, you know, a claim from French-speaking people in uh, in Vanuatu. But um, there were, you know, reminders about France's colonial role. Uh, one of the most important was that um, 
customary leaders from the Malvatu Māori, the Vanuatu's National Council of, uh, of uh, Chiefs, and members of parliament from the southern um, islands of uh, Vanuatu, including the island of Tanna, called on Macron to uh, address long-standing maritime boundary disputes between uh, Vanuatu and uh, New Caledonia. Of course, that's, you know, France claims sovereignty over, you know, New Caledonia, so they claim the vast exclusive economic zone, more than 1.3 million square kilometres of ocean around New Caledonia. And there are two islands known as Matthew and Hunter Islands, both uninhabited rocks that uh, are disputed and have been for, for decades between France and Vanuatu. There's been two rounds of uh, negotiations before COVID pandemic hit, and France has been refusing to join negotiations. So there's a, a major push for um, Macron during his visit to Port Vila to address this long-standing colonial legacy. And it's an uncomfortable problem for France because indigenous Kanak uh, in New Caledonia support Vanuatu's position in this maritime dispute. The Kanak uh, Customary Senate, which links together Kanak indigenous chiefs from New Caledonia, has uh, signed an agreement with um, their counterparts in Vanuatu, in the Malvatu Māori, Vanuatu's councillor chiefs, saying these islands don't belong to New Caledonia, they belong to Vanuatu. And that was um, codified in an agreement signed back in 2009 by uh, the government of Vanuatu and the independence movement, FLNKS. So here you have Melanesian solidarity and cultural diplomacy, what they talk about, oceanic diplomacy, saying through legend, through history, through our belief, through our cultural ties, we people, indigenous people in New Caledonia, think that these islands belong to Vanuatu, to the neighbouring independent state. The French government obviously doesn't agree with its own people. Um, so there's a real tension there. And I, I think, um, so So the visit to Vanuatu really highlighted this contradiction. On the one hand, there was a pretty warm welcome. Uh, people were pleased to see the French president for the first time. And there are many French speakers. Um, uh, Vanuatu is part of Francophonie, which is the sort of French equivalent of uh, the British Commonwealth. But at the same time, uh, Macron couldn't escape the colonial legacies because they're not part of history. They're part of a contemporary dispute over um, um, rights, resources and uh, and heritage. And of course, Vanuatu didn't get the jet flyover. Indeed. Um, Vanuatu is a member of the non-aligned movement uh, and uh, been a proudly anti-nuclear nation um, since uh, independence in 1980. It's one of the signatories to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and uh, has, uh, you know, campaigned strongly for uh, nuclear disarmament. So they don't have much time for uh, Macron's nuclear policies or, or militarism in the region. And, you know, it was sort of ironic. Um, Macron gave a major speech in Port Vila, um, the capital of Vanuatu, talking about um, France's role in the Indo-Pacific region and the threats that come to um, small Pacific nations. And he talked about the dangers of new imperialisms, new imperialism in the region, obviously a code word for China, um, which he said was threatening the, uh, the sovereignty of uh, Pacific states. You know, I think there are many people in Vanuatu and certainly those that I talked to in Numia who think that we should still be talking about the old colonialism and the old imperialism, French, US, British and other imperialisms that have left their legacies in the region. And US and France still controls territories to this day, deploying military forces, 
in their dependencies, like Guam, like French Polynesia, like New Caledonia. So once again, uh, Macron's speech uh, got a lot of headlines talking about the threat of uh, Chinese new imperialism, but um, a lot of people in the in the Pacific want to talk about you know France as a European colonial power and administering power of non-self-governing territories, not a Pacific country in its own right. He didn't travel further east to Polynesia. No, uh, he did send his foreign minister Catherine Colonna to uh, Fiji for a one-day visit. Uh, once again, uh, an unprecedented visit to Fiji. The uh, first time a French foreign minister has ever gone to meet with people, the government in Fiji, and also regional bodies uh, like the Pacific Islands Forum that are headquartered there. France did announce, however, that they're going to open a new embassy in um, uh, Apia, Samoa, the capital of Samoa. And, uh, you know, France is, is saying they're going to extend their diplomatic uh, representation. I mean, this is happening at a time that the Americans are doing that as well. America's opened a new embassy in Tonga, um, at the same time that Macron was in the region, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken from Washington was touring around and he uh, uh, inaugurated the new embassy in Tonga. The US has plans to open uh, embassies also in Kiribati and in Vanuatu, uh, both countries that are perceived as uh, uh, leaning dangerously towards the Chinese. So the Americans are talking tough and uh, extending their diplomatic network. Australia's done the same thing. Um, Australia now has... Uh, high uh, consulates or uh, embassies, high commissions in um, every Pacific Island country. Earlier this year, Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong uh, travelled to Namir and made an unprecedented speech before the Congress of New Caledonia. Um, Australia has now extended its diplomatic uh, network in the region to um, every uh, country and territory, including New Caledonia, French Polynesia uh, and, and so on. Um, you know, Australia, like uh, other Western powers, is concerned about Chinese influence in the region, and we're seeing a major push by uh, AUKUS members, uh, allied countries uh, through the Quad, like Japan and India, uh, to uh, contain Chinese influence. Um, France is desperately trying to keep up with that. Uh, they have pretensions to being a major player, although, uh, as I say, they only have uh, embassies in three Pacific Island countries at the moment. So they've got a way to go to uh, reach the, the capacity that they hope to be a, a significant alternative to uh, the United States and its other allies in the region. These countries in the Pacific must be just about drowning in embassies. Well, there's a, a queue of um, dignitaries turning up. I mean, Prime Minister James Marape of, um, of Papua New Guinea has had a series of high-level visits this year Narendra Modi, uh, the Indian Prime Minister, came for a major uh, India-Pacific summit. Joe Biden tried to gatecrash it, um, um, proposing an American uh, summit with Pacific leaders at the same time. Um, he actually pulled out at the last minute to the anger of the PNG hosts who had to reorganise everything. Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, has been there. Uh, and indeed, uh, US Defence uh, Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin has just visited both Papua New Guinea and Australia seeking to expand American basing rights um, in uh, Papua New Guinea and uh, Northern Australia, such as the deployment of B-52 bombers, nuclear-capable B-52 bombers, which are flying in and out of Tyndall Air Base in the Northern Territory. And the Americans uh, are, are, are ramping up their military and strategic role in the region. Um, there's a lot of questions, though, about whether they'll contribute to the development concerns and the greatest security threat facing the Pacific climate change. 
Last year, President Joe Biden asked uh, Congress to give him $1.6 billion for the Green Climate Fund, global uh, climate finance mechanism. Congress refused. He's asked this year for a billion dollars for the Green Climate Fund. Um, The budget has to be signed off by the 30th of September. That's not that far away. And yet there's no sign that um, the Republican majority in the House is eager to to let uh, Biden spend money on uh, climate security rather than American military security. And so we see billions of dollars literally being expanded in uh, in the Northern Pacific. The Americans are spending uh, a huge amount of money planning a 360-degree missile defence system for Guam, where they have major air and naval bases, the Micronesian island of Guam. But the Pacific can't get the money for tuna fisheries that were promised, can't get the money for climate that are, are urgently required. And um, I think people feel that the Americans talk tough but actually don't deliver because of their broken congressional system. And uh, Pacific leaders are looking anxiously towards Washington because they know that next year will be entangled between the uh, uh, presidential election campaign. The top two contenders are Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump. And uh, people are worried that on one side you've got an ageing president. uh, uh, On the other side, you've got a guy who's facing, uh, I think at the latest count, 74 criminal charges. It's a, a worrying sign that... The Americans are talking tough about making commitments to the Pacific, but there's real concern about whether the broken Congress can deliver the appropriations and funding that's needed to implement all of these summit pledges. Well, let's go back to Macron, um, his visit to PNG. Was he there before Lloyd Austin or after? Uh, just after. And, you know, the, once again, the headlines capture some of the positives of Macron's visit but uh, downplayed the the substance of what he was actually there for. It was a very brief stopover. He didn't spend that long in uh, in Port Moresby, but one of the the major focuses was a photo opportunity where he went strolling through a forest area with um, Prime Minister James Marape of PNG. You know, lots of headlines and photos with uh, Macron pledging um, uh, support for biodiversity and, and forests. You know, Macron certainly is a, a better climate actor than uh, other countries, uh, including one I can name that begins with A. You know, in the days when uh, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change was signed in 2015 in the French capital, Pacific governments were incredibly angry at uh, Scott Morrison in Australia, at Donald Trump in the United States for blocking action on climate, uh, for refusing to increase their emissions reduction targets, um, for cutting money to the Green Climate Fund. Uh, Indeed, Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change um, when he came into the presidency in 2016. So that era, you know, the pre-COVID period, there was a lot of anger from Europeans and the French about the failure of climate policy from um, Anglosphere countries. Having said that, France plays the same game. And uh, one of the things I noted was that as well as going through a, a forest walk with uh, Papua New Guinea and signing bilateral agreements to pledge support for biodiversity and uh, forestry. Um, Macron also had a function where he met with executives and, uh, and officials for Total Energy. Uh, Total is a major French oil and gas energy company and it's a significant investor in Papua New Guinea in fossil fuels. You know, Total Energy holds a 40% interest in Papua LNG, liquid natural gas, alongside uh, 
joint venture partners ExxonMobil and Santos, and Western powers are competing with China for in infrastructure and resource contracts in Papua New Guinea, and Total Energies has several deep offshore exploration licenses as PNG wants to develop its extensive oil and gas reserves. Same debate is in Australia. On the one hand, you have the government pledging action on climate, uh, wanting to protect environment and biodiversity and so on, but still they're um, opening the way for more investment in gas as a so-called transitional fuel away from coal. And, you know, this was a key focus of Macron's visit in the region. Beyond the resources in Papua New Guinea, the focus on resource exploitation was clearly evident in New, in New Caledonia, which has major reserves of nickel. Currently, New Caledonia exports its nickel ore to countries in the Asia-Pacific region. 30% of New Caledonian exports uh, nearly go to, uh, to China. Uh, then to Japan, Korea is a major power, uh, Taiwan. France is, uh, I think, number five or number six export market with only about 8% of exports, total exports from New Caledonia. But Macron has his eyes on nickel in New Caledonia. And he said during his speech at the Place de Cocotier, nickel creates wealth for New Caledonia. It is also, and I say this forcefully, a major strategic resource for France and Europe at a time when we have embarked on a massive reindustrialization effort. And as countries around the world look towards um, uh, using nickel for batteries for electric vehicles, you know, there's a potential El Dorado for nickel producers like Indonesia, like uh, New Caledonia, into the 2030s. But France is saying that the exports that currently go to China, to Japan, to Korea, indeed now to Australia again, um, should be refocused on France and Europe so this geopolitical contest over resources underlies a lot of the, the glad-handing, the kissing babies, the propaganda about France as an alternative power. France is an alternative, and it's seeking to sell arms. It's seeking to access resources in competition, not only with China, but with Anglosphere powers like the United States. And that's where you know Macron joined a long queue of people who are touring the region from Biden to Blinken to Quan Bo, the Chinese um, special envoy. Australia's just appointed uh, Ewan MacDonald, a uh, long-standing DFAT official, head of the Office of the Pacific. He's now not only High Commissioner to Fiji, he's just been named as Australia's special envoy to the Pacific Islands Forum and regional organisations. So all the major powers, Australia included, are seeking to leverage their aid programs, their development programs, their military programs, their intelligence programs to uh, join the great game that's going on around these strategically important islands. People in the Pacific, however, want you know, all of these major countries to talk about the major security threat to the region, which is climate change. That's not happening. Well, I would imagine that the people of the Pacific weren't too happy about this trip because, as you said, climate change is the most important issue. And what did they get out of him? Not a lot. Well, I think I think uh, France and the European Union present themselves as allies of Pacific small island developing states during the global um, uh, climate negotiations. But this year, as the COP heads towards um, the United Arab Emirates, with the COP president being a, an oil company executive, there's a lot of concern in the Pacific that uh, climate diplomacy at the global level isn't meeting the sort of commitments um, that are required. In April this year, um, Macron in Paris hosted a, 
uh, a summit around financing for development and climate action, the so-called PACT summit. Um, there was a lot of talk, a lot of blah, blah, blah at the summit, but no real concrete outcomes. And that's one of the, the key demands from Pacific states about the need not just for people to stop investing in uh, coal, in gas, in, in other fossil fuels, uh, to remove the subsidies, the massive subsidies, $11 billion a year that Australia pays as subsidies to fossil fuel companies, but to redivert those resources towards sustainable development, towards um, climate adaptation and what's called loss and damage to address the demands of developing countries who are facing um, um, severe threats already. And this is happening around the world. Um, you see you know, wildfires in Canada. You see incredible temperatures across Europe at the moment. Uh, quite scary stuff, the, the changes in the North Sea uh, temperatures. You know, the, the climate emergency is heading towards us in all sorts of unpredictable ways. And the smallest countries are bearing the brunt of this uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, across Asia, and certainly small island states in the Caribbean, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. They want action and they're not seeing it from these major powers who are more focused on the technological and military confrontation with China that is, um, is driving international policy. Well, thank you, Nick, and we'll talk again. Thanks, as always, Jen. Look forward to speaking again. And I have indeed been speaking with Nick McClellan, long-time contributor to Tuesday Home Time and currently correspondent for Ireland's Business in the Pacific. The Seamen's Union and the Waterside Workers' Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Finochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music on Monday, September 11 from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall. This event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Qualitops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy.
and welcome back to Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network for our monthly look at genetic engineering. Today, first Bob, a class action of 700 women against Monash IEF and its scientists. This issue with IVF industry has been going on for decades and decades. Is that correct? Yes, right from the inception of the IVF industry in the 1970s and 80s, they were um, deleting medical records. Some IVF doctors impregnated many patients with their own sperm. Anyway, then it was privatised, of course, in a, an outfit called Virtus Health, which was listed on the stock exchange and then worth half a billion dollars continued to deny donor-conceived people their health records and even letters from their biological fathers that had been left on file. And we saw in worst-case scenarios some people who died because they were not able to access their gene-related health history. There was also a lot of concern at the time, and I think it continues, of potential half-sister and brother incest. When people are going to get married, uh, I suppose the last thing from their mind is to get themselves tested to see whether they're related or not. And, uh, of course, this all came out in a very wonderful expose uh, by the ABC journalist Sarah Dingle in her book Brave New Humans, The Reality of Donor Conception, as she was um, in adulthood only discovered that she herself was donor conceived and that one of her very close friends was her half-sister as well. Well, let's look at the Monash IVF at the moment that's gone to the Supreme Court of Victoria. What's the background in this one? Well, it's rather similar, really. Um, embryos were being used for scientific research without the authorisation of, um, of the owners of those embryos. Um, signatures were forged and there was the destruction of documents according to new materials lodged at the Supreme Court. Of course, there are only allegations at the moment because it hasn't gone into the court, but it sounds very much like what was happening decades ago. Really, the National Health and Medical Research Council has a very light regulatory hold over the IVF industry, which is now a billion-dollar private industry with um, clinics all over the landscape. I, I just think now that it's time for uh, the law to be very much tightened up it's shown itself to be a pretty cowboy outfit. And at the moment, there are 700 women involved in this class action uh, against uh, Monash IVF. We'll see how that plays out. But at the moment, the evidence appears strong. I just think they have to be brought to account. Uh, we're talking about now something like one in 20 births in Australia being through the IVF industry. And that's come down in the last decade from 30, uh, one in 30. Sometime soon we'll be seeing uh, perhaps a majority of children being, um, being IVF babies. And I just think we need to, get, as, a, as a community, as a society, to get a much stronger hold on really what's going on in the industry. And also, of course, the causes of low fertility in men and um, fertility problems in women are not being explored. You know, is it synthetic chemicals in the environment and in our food supply, for instance, that is um, rocking the fertility boat among human beings? There don't seem to be too many people looking very hard for the uh, causes of this um, pandemic of, uh, of infertility in, in humans. 
Were you saying that the industry was privatised, but they still get plenty of our money? Yes, that's correct. Yes, they do ride on the back of the public health system. That's why I think the uh, the government, on behalf of the community, needs to take much tougher control. We also saw in the last year or so that um, the law was changed in relation to a particular aspect of uh, genetic research um, with a project concerning mitochondrial replacement. The mitochondria are the energy-mediating genes in the, in the white of the human egg. If something goes wrong there, uh, then people do suffer mitochondrial diseases, some of which are quite insignificant and are only discovered later in life, but they can also be very, very severe in children. The Mito Foundation and a coterie of scientists dreamed up the idea that um, they would replace the mitochondria in women who are suffering mitochondria disease, mitochondrial disease, and, and could then enable these women to have their own biologically related children, even though, of course, they could go through IVF and have donor children without endangering the, uh, the health status of those children. In any event, IVF was awarded $15 million last year for clinical research trials of the genome editing of um, the mitochondria in women who are suffering mitochondrial disease. Well, we will not know how the, um, the research actually goes because the law that now covers it is very secretive indeed with uh, scanned information being available. Uh, the only other country in the world that does this, of course, is England, and they've had, I think, one or two live births at this stage. But, but the chances of um, the children suffering mitochondrial disease is also a real issue. The law, as it now stands, denies them any support and also, I believe, infringes their human rights and the rights of their children and grandchildren as well because now we're in the area of uh, future generations, the genetic makeup of future generations also being affected. And this is heritable human genome editing, which is... Um, starting to venture into the area of uh, designer babies, which um, the community as a whole has uh, resoundingly rejected, not only in Australia, but worldwide. Well, is the question, why are Great Britain or England and Australia the only ones who are going ahead with this? What are the other countries saying? Well, there are some clinics in other places who claim to be um, also doing these techniques, but... Uh, Generally speaking, there are about um, 70 countries that have specifically outlawed uh, venturing into the uh, genetic manipulation where you could conceivably design the character traits of your offspring. Uh, but we've got, in contrast to that, a couple of Australian bioethicists who even say genetic selection of desirable traits might be required in the future. This, of course, is venturing into the eugenic area. And for a century from the 1880s to the 1980s, we saw the sterilization and even uh, in some societies like Germany, for instance, the mass elimination of people who were seen as in some way defective, either mentally or physically. This uh, eugenics was practiced in many other countries, including Australia, the USA, Canada and the UK. We've now got the technology with genome editing uh, invented in 2012 
to venture in the direction of designing future babies and giving them the characteristics that uh, we think are desirable for them. That's eugenics. It's um, unacceptable, really. And uh, the International Coalition to Stop Design a Baby's Petition is available. The listeners would like to go there, have a look at the petition and sign on. Um, a couple of thousand groups and individuals are already on the record as, as opposing this. So Coalition Stop Designer Babies net is the, uh, the place to go to have a look at the international petition and I would be encouraging people to support that because uh, this needs to become a global discussion. Certainly the people who are promoting eugenics and the gene editing of babies and future generations are having international meetings and are getting their plans together for this to be put in place when the technology becomes available and ready for, ready for use. And I'd imagine that with many other interventions that there's little or no thought of what's going to happen to those babies' children in the future through their lives. Well, certainly the Parliament, when it passed the um, new uh, mitochondrial law reform bill last year and then allocated $15 million to the research, nobody was responsible. All of the people who might be responsible for the outcomes of this research were exonerated in the legislation. We asked for um, a fund to be set up in the case that um, children of this experimental research might be themselves affected by mitochondrial disease. And the government of the time, which of course was the Liberal Coalition, uh, rejected that out of hand. And a number of other checks and balances, like being more open in the reporting. There will be some reporting of progress of the research, but um, it's scant. And we also have very serious concerns about the people within the National Health and Medical Research Council who were quite blatant in their promotion of the change in the law and of the research, uh, who will actually be the regulators on this. So I think there are some very, very serious questions to still be pursued and answered uh, from our medical authorities about the status of the IVF industry. Well, at least this case against Modest IVF will be going to a judge, perhaps a a jury in a Supreme Court of Victoria. Yes, well, that's um, in process, so we'll see how that plays out. I mean, it could be quite a long time before there's um, a conclusion, but I think the fact that 700 women are involved in the class action is pretty much an indication in itself that something serious is wrong. The, re the so-called regulators who are operating mostly on guidelines rather than the law need to sit up and take notice and uh, do something serious about this. And we're certainly asking the minister and the parliament to uh, reconsider their position about the mitochondrial research in light of um, the misbehaviour of the IVF industry. I'm just wondering what the Labor Party's position was when that was discussed last year. That was interesting. Um, it was uh, down to a conscience vote. And so people from all parties, um, with the interesting exception of the Greens, had, had their own vote. So there were people from right across the um, Parliament and the Senate. The Greens, unfortunately, didn't exercise their right to a cons conscience vote, and they 
voted in favour of the changes to the law. Yeah, that was a major disappointment, I thought, and uh, we're still in correspondence with them about it, getting no clear conclusions. Uh, They're currently reviewing their policies on genetic manipulation, and I think there are people in the party who understandably, um, I suppose, given the way education is these days, are techno-optimists. You know, they think that technology may solve uh, many problems, including human health. And uh, I think they just went into it rather uncritically. And I think that they should have allowed their members, like the other parties, to exercise um, their independent judgment about what the law said. That was, uh, for them, from my point of view at least, um, a major disappointment and a failure that they um, all lined up uh, behind the shadow minister to get the bill passed, particularly in the Senate, as the very last piece of legislation before the last election at 10.30 at night, uh, the bill was passed. So it certainly showed the government and uh, the lobbyists were very, very determined to get it through and to get the um, the money into the hands of the researchers at Monash IVF for a 10-year project on uh, human heritable genome editing, uh, which means that future generations and their human rights will be affected. This next segment is not for vegans or vegetarians. It's called lab growth meat. What does that all mean, Bob? Well, you know that um, a lot of vegetarian junk food has turned up in the uh, supermarkets over the last several years. Uh, Most of it has been plant-based material. I, I don't think you could call it food, really. Um, masquerading as meat. Now, why you would want to turn good plants and so on into what appears to be meat, trying to win the allegiance of meat eaters, I guess, is their marketing strategy. In any event, that hasn't been a huge success, but there are now a number of companies, 150 companies, in fact, um, globally, um, with $3 billion invested, are working on cell-based products. So they they take the cells from a living animal, they culture them, they make a cell line, and in uh, bioreactors, which are factory vats, they would culture these cell-based products to produce, again, meat-like substances, which can only be um, characterised, I think, as ultra-processed junk food, sort of be a mush, really, And it would then be formed into uh, burgers, meatballs, sausages, dumplings, and other undifferentiated meat like that. There's no prospect that it will be able to produce a a steak or another cut of meat, for instance. So it'll always, I think, remain uh, this kind of slush, which is made to look like meat. And in fact, where it's been tried already, it hasn't been a, a great success. And the actual cost at the moment is a thousand times the uh, cost of producing um, a steak from an animal. <laughs> they still have a lot of work to be to do, but um, a lot of companies are throwing their hat into the ring, including some of the largest U.S. meat companies in the world that uh, trade internationally. Tyson Foods and Cargill, for instance, among those who are making fake, fake meat out of plant proteins already. Of course, they're imagining that vegans who are only about 1.3% of 
of the community would drive that market. Uh, but if they're going to be commercially successful, obviously they have to either um, recruit uh, a much bigger um, band of vegetarians and potentially some meat eaters as well to accept these products. Well, they've got $3 billion to play around with. That's a lot of money. It is. I mean, there's been a lot of enthusiasm for the idea that you could uh, do this in your factory that. And I suppose they're encouraged. Uh, Food and Agriculture Organisation of the UN report recently reviewed fake meat and found over 50 potential health risks with the process. But overall, they said the risk wasn't that different from conventional meat products anyway, which says something about meat, I think, <laughs> and, uh, and its production uh, using animals. There are lots of pitfalls there, including antibiotic use, hormones, and a whole raft of other, even beside the um, animal welfare and health issues, um, a lot of uh, issues from the meat supply um, in human food. And Bob Phelps is the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, and we'll hear more from Bob next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.